made the statement that uh, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that had lived in Egypt and made it into the promised land. But the truth is, and I'd forgotten this, this part of it, when God uh, told the uh, older generation that they were not going to get to go into the promised land, it was only from those 20 years of age and older. So those that were 19 and younger uh, would have lived in Egypt uh, and will, would have come into uh, the promised land. Uh, it's interesting that the Bible is very clear to point that out. Does, does it matter? Well, certainly everything in the Bible matters. It wouldn't be there if it didn't, wasn't profitable to us. So I started thinking on uh, why would God only do that for those that were 20 years of age and older? And what would be his purpose in that? And uh, I've, I've thought of something, and, and this is one of the thoughts I've had, and I'm going to share it with you real quick, and then we're going to move on. Uh, I have recently, in, in three or four different situations, had to counsel people that have come to me and said, uh, Pastor, I have a, well, there's a thing going around in this Word of Faith movement uh, of folks called a generational curse. In other words, my parents have sinned, and so I don't have any choice in it. I'm going to sin too. Cause, and they use the passage that the Bible says that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the second and third generation. It's not, if you take it in the context of the passage, he is not saying that the second and third generations are going to continue in that iniquity. Uh, what he's talking about is that the consequences of that iniquity are going to be felt by the following generations. The scars of that are still there. And that's the context of it. But they, there's been a misteaching today that uh, this thing, if you ever hear the term generational curse, there's, there's no such thing in Scripture given uh, in the sense that they mean it in. Uh, and so uh, please understand that. And so I, I think one of the things that I have learned in remembering this and recalling it this, this week and thinking about, well, why would God not just take all of them and just let the new people come in, the, those that were... Uh, 38 years of age and younger, uh, go into the promised land. And I think uh, what I understand, from what I understand of it, is the nation of Israel uh, was a very patriarchal society, uh, meaning that the generations that followed, the children, when they got married and had children of their own, and they got married and had children of their own, they would oftentimes live together as a clan or as a family in a group. And the, the head patriarch of the family was responsible. We know this from Deuteronomy chapter number 6, that the head of that family was responsible for the religious leading of that family and the spiritual leading of that family. And the responsibility of the young people were to be obedient and submitted to uh, their, their uh, authority in their life, which at that point, and in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy, was the patriarchal figure, the, the, the head of the home. And so their responsibility was to obey. But I believe the reason God did not hold the same uh, penalty on the children as He did on the parents is because the children's responsibility was not to determine whether it was right or wrong to go into the promised land. Their responsibility was to follow mom and dad. And mom and dad were the ones that made that choice. And so I, some people may disagree with me on that, but trying to take the other teachings of Scripture and make all of that make sense and understand why that happened, I believe that that would be a very good explanation or reason why those that were 19 years of age and younger uh, were allowed to go on into the Promised Land, uh, even though they were alive at the time they had come out of Egypt 
And even though they were alive during the time that the mom and dads made uh, the choice not to go into the land. And uh, so, again, some people may disagree with that explanation, but I do believe that that certainly is in line with other portions of Scripture and is in agreement with that. And if you have other ideas on that, I'd be certainly glad to hear those because I always love to hear new thoughts on that. There's sometimes things that uh, I don't see that somebody else sees in Scripture, and uh, it's a big help. So, uh, anyway, I wanted to correct that. That was from the book of Joshua last week. Uh, before we get into Judges uh, on this week and make sure that uh, we, we dealt with that carefully. Uh, let's take a look at Judges or the book of Judges here. And I'm going to give you some introductory information <clears throat> before we get into um, some of the verses of Scripture from it. Joshua, or Judges is almost an antithesis or a, almost an op- opposite book of the book of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, we see uh, the nation of Israel as an obedient nation uh, to God, and we see them as a, uh, a nation of faith, a nation that trusts the power of God and the might of God. We see battles uh, of Jericho, and we see uh, the second battle of Ai, and uh, some of these other great conquests that happened uh, during the seven years of military conquest that Joshua led them in. Uh, God's mighty hand at work. Uh, through through many of these things. And uh, this generation in, in the book of Joshua had seen these things. They were uh, victorious. They were on fire. They were uh, excited about following the Lord. And uh, Joshua gets to the end of his life, and he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, and that sort of thing. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this is the mindset of the people during the time of Joshua. We get into the time of Judges, and we'll find that there's the exact opposite. Now we find uh, a very cold, spiritually cold nation uh, that oftentimes uh, involves themselves in disobedience and idolatry. Those two things specifically led to the downfall of Israel. At least seven different cycles of this we'll find in the book of Judges. Seven distinct cycles of um, falling into disobedience and idolatry. And by the way, I believe those two go hand in hand. Uh, you, when, when, when disobedience begins, and that's usually the first step. Uh, well, I know this is what the Bible says, but... Have you ever heard anybody say that? <laughs> I've heard so many people say it. I know that God wants this, however, uh, he, He's got to understand. I, and, uh, if God said it, then that's the, that's the truth. That's what we've got to live by. This is our standard. This is what we go by. And disobedience is always the first step that leads to idolatry. And uh, it's interesting because when we disobey somebody, in actuality what we are saying is, I know that this will that you have for me to do this is your will, but I'm not going to do that, and that's my will. I don't want to do that. And when we start taking and saying, I don't want God's will in my life, I want my will in my life, It doesn't take hardly any effort at all to get to the place where my will reigns supreme. And when my will reigns supreme, I have now entered this uh, very uh, vile area of life called idolatry. There are things now that are superior to the things of God. There are things I hold closer in my life than I hold to the things of the Lord. And now I've become idolatrous. Not in the sense that I've got uh, a wood or a stone carving in my house that I kneel and bow down to every day. But there are things, and we all face these. We don't recognize them as idolatry, even though they are. We all have things that are more precious to us that we 
give of our heart and our time and our resources more than we do for the things of the Lord. And when that takes place, we begin to disobey God. We're saying, I, I don't want your will, Lord. I want my will. And the moment we get there, we start walking down that road of idolatry. And this is what the nation of Israel does seven distinct times in the book of Judges. Um, this this uh, book covers about, uh, 400, and, about 400 years, uh, about 370 or so of them. Uh, really are, are dealt with in detail in this book, and then about an additional 30 years uh, of Samuel, who is the transitional figure uh, between the judges and the kings. And so we'll be looking a little bit at that as we get a little bit further into it. Very important to note something here at the onset as you look into the book of Judges is the book of Judges is written topically. Uh, it is not written necessarily chronologically. For instance, chapter 16 through the end of the book, chapter 21, uh, deals with events in the, in the nation of Israel that actually took place prior to some of the events that take place in chapters 3 to chapter 15. So they kind of flip-flopped by way of chronology, the order in which they took place. It might help us to understand that so that when we look at some of this, we don't scratch our heads and say there's a conflict there because the times don't seem to line up. Uh, understand that it deals with it topically. Uh, and that the chronology of it is actually reversed from the first half of the book to the second half of the book. Uh, and if you'll keep that in mind, that'll help with uh, grasping some things in Judges that might cause you to scratch your head a little bit and be like, mm, that, that didn't seem to line up right as far as the timing of it. Also know this, there are 12 Judges specifically that are mentioned in Judges. I've given you a little chart in the notes that will be available after class. There will be a little chart that you can look at that talks about all 12 of them and kind of when they served and the, the enemies that they uh, were there to fight against. Um, but there were 12 uh, basic judges in the book of Judges that were dealt with here. Some of them overlapped in their time of service. And the reason for that was uh, there were times that some judges ruled, but they did not rule the entirety of the nation. They ruled a, a region or an area. And so sometimes there would be a judge over here that ruled over several tribes and were judges over them, and then a, another judge over here that might overlap some of that, uh, perhaps with another area. Um, the reason for that is uh, there were uh, five distinct regions once the tribes were uh, assigned, and we saw some of that. I gave you a chart last week, a picture of that last week in your notes in Joshua, how the tribes had uh, their assigned lands. Uh, there were five different regions that were broken up, and not by tribe, but by region of the land. And uh, in chapters three to uh, three, verse seven to thirty-one, uh, the judge that is spoken of there uh, is dealing with the southern region, the cycle of, of sin that the southern region was having. And it's interesting to note this as we go through Judges that not all of Israel did all of the wrong all of the time. Sometimes it was an area of Israel, but Israel paid the price for it as a nation. Uh, in chapter 4 through chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, we find the northern region uh, was going through this, this cycle at that particular time. In chapter 6 through chapter 10, we find the central region. In chapter 10 through chapter 12, we find the eastern region. And then in chapter 13 through chapter 16, we have the western region. The, by the time it gets through the entirety of it, the entire uh, area of Israel at one time or another in this 400-year period uh, had gone through uh, rebelling against God, sinning against God, uh, being brought into captivity under subjection, 
um, asking and pleading for God to deliver, and then God delivering again. And uh, so it didn't always happen to the whole country all at the same time, um, but there, so there was some overlap there, and you need to kind of keep some of that in mind as well as you read when, when you read uh, the book of Judges, understanding that. The author of Judges is, is unknown. Uh, I'm going to start with that. We don't know for sure who wrote Judges. Did I say Joshua? I'm at Judges. All right. Uh, we don't know for sure who wrote Judges. Uh, there's some indication that Samuel uh, wrote uh, some of it, if not a lot of it or all of it. Uh, there's no proof of that. We certainly believe, and there's a lot of agreement by a lot of folks, that more than likely, even if he did not author most of it, he was certainly instrumental in compiling it and collating the book and putting it together. Um, again, no proof of that, but there there is some evidences that can be found uh, both internally and externally where we can see Samuel's fingerprints on it to some degree. And uh, again, it's not one of those things that I would... Uh, uh, split fellowship over, because at the end of the day, there is no proof one way or the other that he did. It just there's some supposition there and some some indication, some outward signs that perhaps he was instrumental at least in bringing the book um, together. But whether Samuel offered it or not, uh, he is a very very critical link uh, between the end of Judges, the time of the Judges and the time of the kings starting in the nation of Israel. He's a transitional figure, if you will. Uh, let me just kind of make this statement uh, to help with a, a little bit of background here. From the time uh, of Moses uh, coming out of Egypt until the time of uh, Israel uh, electing Saul as their king, Israel is ruled under what would be called a theocracy, meaning that God was the one who was... The king, there was no king of Israel. They would have leaders that would lead them spiritually. He had Moses initially, and eventually Aaron was brought in, and God established the priesthood. And the priests were there to give the law of God, to administer the law of God, to do the ceremonial and uh, sacrificial uh, rites in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And the, the, the country was generally ruled... Uh, by the authority of what God had given. Uh, he was the government to them. And uh, he made the laws. God's laws were what Israel followed. Uh, they didn't have uh, a house of representatives. They didn't have uh, a senate that made up the laws. They didn't have a constitution that made up the laws. They had God who sat as the supreme ruler of Israel and gave them the laws. And Israel followed them, or, or they decided not to follow them in this case. Um, so there were, no, there were no kings to speak of. Uh, however, there's a number of judges between the book of Judges and when you get into First uh, and Second Samuel, you'll see a lot of different leaders and rulers that were raised up during time of need. A no, quite a few number of them, 17 of them in all, uh, more so than what are named just in the book of Judges. But there were 17 of them in all. Most of them, I think it was about 14 or 15 of them, were warrior rulers. In other words, they came and delivered the nation of Israel by might and strength and with God's help. You have the story of Gideon, uh, obviously a miracle of God that did that. You have um, uh, uh, Barak and Deborah. You have some of these, these great judges. Samson came along and some of these folks, that, that they were mighty. They were strong. They delivered militarily. 
and they were warrior rulers. Uh, we have one of them, Eli, who was a priest at the time, and then we also have Samuel, uh, who was considered to be a prophet. And the reason I say all that is uh, when we look at how Christ is pictured in Judges, we see that the Judges themselves are very much a picture of the role that Christ plays uh, in our lives as uh, uh, the prophet and the priest and the king position that Christ takes over. And again, we see this displayed in the lives of the judges in many cases. Um, uh, it's, it's pretty clear as we get into judges um, that the time frame that this took place in was sometime, and if you remember some of the reading of the Old Testament, um, the tabernacle was built in the wilderness. And inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where the mercy seat was. At some point, the Ark gets captured and gets moved around different places, and we find that most of the stuff that happens in the book of Judges happens sometime after the Ark of the Covenant was removed from the city of Shiloh. And you'll see that story found in 1 Samuel chapter number 4, uh, verses 2 through 11. Again, I'll have that in your notes if you'd like to go back and read through that story. But most of what we read about in Judges happens after that time period that the Ark was removed uh, from Shiloh. But it was prior to um, the end of Saul's reign. I would not say prior to the beginning of Saul's reign because I believe it covers maybe even a little bit of that. Uh, take your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me to uh, Joshua chapter number, uh, the book of Joshua chapter number, uh, I think it's 21, is that right? Let me see, I, I wrote the passage wrong here, I think. I think, it's, is this it? Joshua. Nope. Uh, let me make sure I'm right here. Twenty-four and ten. Well, let's go back to chapter number two of Joshua and verse number ten. I think that's right. Is that right? No, that's not it. I've got a wrong verse written down here. Uh, suffice to say, at the end of Joshua, and I, let's see if I can find it here because it's it's this is a really good one here. Okay, yeah, here we go. Uh, let's go to Joshua chapter twenty-four and verse number thirty-one. And this, this will serve to help us through this. I'm not sure it's the exact verse I was looking for, but it's one that it will certainly make the same point. Joshua chapter 24 and verse number 31. And this is uh, when Joshua dies. Notice that the Bible says here in verse 31, "...in Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua, and, notice this, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel." So as long as there was a generation alive that knew the works of God, the hand of God, through those seven years that Joshua led them, they followed the Lord. But now look with me in chapter number 2 of Judges. Chapter number 2 of Judges. And let's look in verse number 10. Joshua, or Judges chapter 2 and verse number 10. And also, all that generation, so now we're speaking here of the new generation. The, the old generation that had led, had followed under Joshua is starting to pass off the scene. We've got a new generation because it says here, uh, And also, all that generation were gathered under their fathers, 
And there arose another generation after them, which, notice this, knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done for Israel. This is key at the onset of the book of Judges, and I believe is one of the great reasons why Israel continued to go through the cycles of sin, uh, uh, oppression, um, uh, pleading with God for deliverance, and then God bringing deliverance. Uh, We find that cycle over and over and over again. As long as Joshua was alive and those were alive that had seen the hand of God work and knew of them, they were faithful. But there arose a generation after them who knew not the Lord, nor His wonderful works. Can I uh, mention something here that, by way of observation of that verse? I don't believe this was the fault of the young people. I believe this was the fault of the parents. They should have been responsible for keeping before their children the mighty hand of God at work in their lives. They should have been the ones to help teach and to train them. And by the way, even God had given them that responsibility. Deuteronomy chapter number 6. He told them that he, they, should, he, they should speak of the law of God when they uh, were lying down and when they rose up, when they stayed at home, when they went out. Basically, anything they were doing, they were supposed to be keeping the law of God in the minds of their children. They were to be teaching them to observe these things. They were to be keeping the mighty hand of God at work. I am convinced that one of the great reasons why we see more and more people, <coughs> young, young people, falling away from doctrinally sound church attendance or, or not going to church at all is because they are around a bunch of Christians who in our day have seen the mighty hand of God at work. We've, by, by personal experience, we've had Him work in our lives. We've been excited about what God has done for us, but we've not, we have failed to show our children those things. When something happens great in my life, one of the first things I want to do is share it with my son. I want my son to know, boy, God has been good at this. Look what He did for us. We had a, a miracle happen in our life uh, last week. We were traveling back from Florida, and just some, some circumstances that God worked out supernaturally. And there was no doubt that we looked at that. And even he and I were talking about it in the car. God just did that. Uh, it was just an amazing thing. We need to make sure that our young people see God at work. In order for them to see it, you and I have to see it. Look at the things that God has done in our lives throughout just the last seven days. When it comes time to give praise to God or thanks to God or to talk about something God has done good for us, we ought to run out of time speaking of those things that God has done for us. They've been so manifold. And here we find the distinct contrast between the generation in Joshua and the generation in Judges. The problem here is that there was a generation that came up after them which knew not God, nor uh, the works which He had done for Israel. And I put that blame on the parents. I really do. I, I think that that is a, a great downfall. And the day that we live, I believe that that is a great downfall. Where we do not have young people learning from the parents and seeing. I believe one of the big reasons a lot of people don't ever want to come to a church is the church started trying to do everything that they could externally to get people to come to church. And they started pulling all kinds of shenanigans. They started pulling all kinds of men's techniques and methods to try to get people to come to church. And at some point, the power of God got pushed out of the way. The presence of God got pushed out of the way. I was talking to somebody just recently, and I, there's, 
good friends of mine, the pastor, they're young, younger preachers, and they pastor churches, and they have these, these carnival days at church, and they'll have hay rides and, and pony rides at church on Sundays, and they'll have uh, the dunk tanks and the things after the church to get people to come. And I think we've gimmicked people so badly about church attendance and we've, we've discounted the power of God. I'll tell you this, when a church will get on its face and begin to pray and seek for God to move, and God begins to work in a church, there's not a whole lot that has to be done to get the world to sit up and take notice of that. They'll start seeing that, boy, there's something different at that church. There's something different going on in the hearts of those people. And they'll come just to be a part of it. They'll, they'll see that and they'll say, boy, there's something genuine there. There's something right there. And I don't ever want our church to become a gimmicky church. We, we want to stand on what the Bible says. We want to stand on what the Holy Spirit is doing here. When we pray for God to do something here, I don't want to come up with some kind of great idea to get people to come to church. I want to preach, and I want to have God's power on this place. And we want to sing music that's right, and we want to be Christ-honoring in our life and our testimony. And we want people to see that there is a God that still does a transforming work in the hearts of people. And they'll start coming and saying, boy, there's something different there that I want. This uh, generation that grew up in Judges knew not God nor His wonderful works. In several different places, and we're not going to look at all of them, but let's look at one of them. In chapter number 17 and verse number 6, probably one of the key phrases, I would say, that takes place in the book of Judges Judges chapter 17 and verse number 6. And it's probably one of the underlying reasons why they were going through many of the problems they were going through. Uh, Judges chapter 17, verse number 6, you'll find this statement. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. By the way, the mess that we are in in our country today is because... Every man is doing that which is right in their own eyes. Our, our will, our discernment of what is right and what is wrong is fallible. The only infallible standard of what is right and what is wrong is the Word of God. And when men begin to do what is right in their eyes, we begin to see that the nature We'll take more care of nature and put more money towards caring for nature than we will human life. We'll begin to call things that are right wrong, and we'll begin to call things that are wrong right. Those that are holding to the truth and a moral standard of a holy God are those that are considered deviant now in society. Why? Because every man did that which was right in their own eyes. You'll find this statement mentioned in Judges chapter 17 and verse number 6, which we just looked at. You'll find it repeated throughout the book in chapter 18 and verse number 1, in chapter 19 and verse number 1, in chapter 21 and verse number 25. You'll find this phrase repeated over and over again. Probably one of the most damaging thoughts and mindsets of this nation is that they do what is right in their own si- uh, in their own eyes. Let's look at a few keys to Judges, and we'll be done here. I'll make just one or two real quick, simple observations, and then we'll be done. The key word here, I think, uh, would be cycle or, or cycles. The idea of uh, 
the nation of Israel continuing over a 400-year period, seven different times, or 370-year-ish period, seven different times they go through this cycle. And it's often enough that when we look at that and we say, that's a fairly short period of time for that to happen that many times. We say, didn't they learn? Didn't they learn from their mistakes? And it's easy for us to quickly look at that. But when their eyes are not in the right place, when they're looking the wrong way, and they're not, they're not focusing on the things of the Lord, it's easy to go that way. And before we're too critical, how many times do we continue going back to the same thing that we've done time after time after time and find ourselves in that situation again? And we ask ourselves even sometimes, why didn't I learn the first time? Why, didn't I, why do I find myself back here again? Here I am again, doubting God, forsaking God, not following His Word. And again, we see that happening time and time again, not only in Israel, but if we're truthful about it and honest with ourselves, it is the, it is the inclination of our hearts to do this in our own lives. We are pre, we were not presupposed, but we're, we're uh, prone, let me put it that way, that's the word I'm looking for, we're prone to do this. It's, it's something that is part of the old flesh nature, to go back to the old life, to go back to the things that we used to do. And uh, I'll tell you, it's a battle. It's a daily battle. This isn't a thing that you fight one time and get victory over, and then you wash your hands and walk away, wipe your sweat, and say, wow, I'm glad I'm done with that. It's something that will face us day in and day out and day in and day out. Every morning when we wake up, we make a choice. As we go through the day, oftentimes we make a choice. My will or His will? Am I going to do what God wants today or am I going to do what I want today? The problem Israel had disobedience, my will, not His. And it wasn't long before idolatry followed. Can I tell you, we got to be very careful that we are aware that this is a daily battle. That we wake up every morning and we repurpose and re-rededicate our lives and say, Lord, I want Your will, not mine today. Why? Because if not, we're going to end up in this area of idolatry. Uh, key verses are found in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, which we've already looked at. And uh, chapter 21 and verse number 25. Let's look at 20, go back to chapter 2 just to, by way of refreshing our memories to it. Judges chapter 2, let's look at verse number 20. And the, anger, <clears throat> and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left, when he died. In other words, he says, this stiff-necked people, I'm not going to help them drive them out. They're, these folks are going to be here, and they're going to be a thorn to them. And then look with me, if you will, and this, this, kind of, this verse kind of goes tandem and in hand-in-hand with chapter 21. So look at chapter 21 and the very uh, last verse. And again, this was the final time that we see this particular statement being made. And it's interesting that he concludes the entire book with this. In, this day, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The hand of the Lord was not uh, leading, was not guiding, was not directing in driving out the inhabitants of the land. In fact, um, there is a verse in Judges, and I wish I had written it down, that actually says that God left some of these strongholds in there for the purpose of proving Israel to see if they would remain faithful. And um, chapter 2 of the book of Judges is the key chapter. In chapter 2, you'll find kind of a, 
uh, summary or a miniaturization of the entirety of the book. You'll see almost the entirety of the book summarized in one chapter, in chapter number two. And uh, then uh, throughout the book, uh, we find that uh, this uh, judging, this falling away, these cycles uh, throughout the book, we find that eventually it happened throughout the entirety of the land. Even though it didn't always happen to all of it at the same time, there, throughout the book, uh, over that period of time, it ended up happening in every region, every area of Israel. Uh, the book can be divided into three main subjects, and I'll just leave you with this one and we'll be done. Uh, in chapter 1 through chapter 3, we see the deterioration of the generation that came after uh, uh, the, the time of Joshua. In chapter 3 through chapter 16, we find the deliverance uh, uh, that God gave to many of them. And then in chapter 17 through chapter 21, we see the depravity uh, of the nation of Israel. So you see three main categories of the book. And again, it's organized uh, topically, uh, oftentimes rather than uh, chronologically. So try to keep that in mind as you do it. I also have included, uh, and I'll have the notes available for you after class here, uh, after Sunday school. I do have a chart that has the judges. For some reason, it printed the other direction. (laughs) And it's kind of small, but you can read it. Uh, if you get your magnifying glass out. But uh, it does have uh, the, the 12 judges um, that are found in this book and some information about them. All right, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Lord, may it be used to help us in our life. May we learn from the things that we see happening in the Old Testament, in the life of the nation of Israel, And as we've seen not only what they did, but we've seen your response to what they did, we know your heart regarding their uh, actions, their attitudes. 